Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Going underneath, it goes to Samson, he puts yes. it in. Oh, yeah! We're on our way! We're on our way! A miraculous shot by Ron Samson has given the Houston Rockets a trip to Boston for the NBA World Title. Oh, wow. That's one of those goosebump moments for every Rockets fan. 34 years ago tomorrow, May the 22nd, it's the anniversary of that Ralph Sampson buzzer beater over the Lakers that put the Rockets in the 86 finals. And as we do every Thursday, we jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday. And in honor of the anniversary, we'll listen back to an interview I did with former Rockets beat writer Robert Falkoff a few years ago on the 30th anniversary of the 86 Rockets magical run. He also helps us go through the entire turn of events that made it happen and how that team quickly unraveled. Then later in the show, I've got a little bonus conversation with Robert Reed, who played on both the 86 and 81 finals teams. We asked him about Samson and so much more. Got to say, if you're a longtime Rocket fan, you might learn a thing or two with this show. So without further ado, let's jump into the time machine. For some of us, it's hard to believe, but 30 years ago at this time, the Rockets defeated the Lakers on Ralph Sampson's buzzer beater and made it to the NBA Finals to play the Boston Celtics. It looked like the beginning of a dynasty with the Twin Towers, Elijah Wanted Sampson, and a great young roster, but it turned out to be the greatest team that never was, as a Grantland.com piece called it a few years ago. Back with me on Houston Sports Talk is good friend Robert Falkoff, who, as many of you remember, was the Rockets beat writer for the Houston Post from 1980 through the championship seasons. Robert, you wrote books on the 94 championship season and on Rudy T, but this rise and fall of the 86 Rockets could have been a book on its own, couldn't it have? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great young team that really uh, found its way. And in 1986, went into the playoffs, I think, a little bit unsure, very talented, but still young, probably ended up being the year ahead of schedule in the eyes of the of coach Bill Fitch that they got to the NBA finals probably ahead of schedule really gained strength and a lot of camaraderie as the season went on they faced a lot of adversity got stronger from it and when they got into the playoffs I just remember you know they took out Sacramento in a sweep and then had a really great series against the Denver Nuggets in the second round went six games and they won a a real hard-fought game six to get to the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers, who everybody thought would handle them easily. And then it looked like that after game one, the Lakers won game one, and then everything changed in game two. The Rockets won that game. I went to Houston and won games three and four, shocked everybody with the way they handled the Lakers and then ended up winning that series and really were competitive in the finals against a great Celtic team. So to play the Celtics and the Lakers in that 86, 85, 86 season, two of the great teams in NBA history that alternated championships through the decade of the 80s was was quite a quite a feat and, and really speaks well to how much ability was on that 86 Rockets team. Well, I want to revisit those series in a little bit. Let, but let's start from the beginning and the building of the team. The Celtics owned the first overall pick of the 80 draft. And according to Ralph Sampson, Celtics owner and GM Red Arbach came to Sampson's house before the draft and tried to convince him to declare for the draft. He couldn't convince Sampson, so Red traded that pick to Golden State for Robert Parrish. And the third overall pick 
where he drafted Kevin McHale. Robert, this was a monumental turn of events in NBA history. I mean, what 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 would have happened if if Ralph Sampson ends up with the Celtics? It that's a that's a change in history right there. Yeah, it really was. You know, really speaks to I think the change in in culture. You know, nowadays someone with with Ralph's ability, uh, even though he was a little bit raw, probably uh, in those years, if you're going to be the first pick in the draft, well, there's it's, it's a no-brainer you, you come out. But Ralph was committed to staying at uh, at Virginia for four years, and he had a tremendous college career. When he turned down the Celtics, that is a a tremendous commitment to say, hey, no, I'm not I'm not coming yet. I'm going to stay in college. I'm going to see it through. I think his mother was very, very instrumental in wanting him to have uh, his college degree from Virginia by the time he started his pro basketball career. But, hey, uh, that was probably uh, one of Red's uh, greatest to, to get. Uh, basically, he got Parrish and McHale for Joe Barry Carroll. That's one heck of a trade and, and really set the Celtics up for for the um, the championship years that they had winning, I think, in 81, 84, and 86 with Larry Bird and those other great players, Parrish, McHale, and so forth, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, just a great team. That Celtic team, I believe, might have been the best, 86 team might have been the best team I ever saw because they were 40-1 and one at home. I know that. They lost a, a buzzer beater to Portland around uh, New Year's or Christmas right in that area at home, and they were just tremendous. The Rockets traded away Moses Malone just one season after their run to the finals in 81. They were 46 and 36 the following season. So remind everybody, Robert, why they traded Moses and what led them to being bad enough to get the coin flip, with it, which then led to Ralph. Yeah, just a crazy scenario. They really, at the time, were a 500 team with Moses, who was an MVP caliber player, but Money-wise, they didn't really have the pieces to put around him. And they had this crazy opportunity. Philadelphia had one of the coin flip picks. They could trade him and go for the future as opposed to giving their whole payroll to Moses and then not having anything to go around him. So they made a pretty bold move with Charlie Thomas, the owner, to get that pick with an eye on Ralph Sampson, that they would, in effect, the franchise player would go from being Moses Malone to Ralph Sampson. Philadelphia had Cleveland's pick, and Cleveland was terrible. That was back in the Ted Stepien days, and the old-timers remember how bad that franchise was. So it was almost assumed that Cleveland would be one of the coin flip participants, and then the Rockets would be so bad without Moses that they would be the other. The master plan was that they would have both ends of the coin flip. Number one and number two, they couldn't lose. But a monkey wrench was thrown into that when somehow Indiana was even worse than Cleveland. And so it turned out uh, the Rockets had one of the coin flip opportunities and they had to flip against the Indiana Pacers. Their 100% chance to get Ralph Sampson suddenly was 50% going into the coin flip. You talk about tension in a game or tension in a series or a season. Basically, the whole franchise and the persona of the franchise was riding on this little quarter flipping around on the ground, which is what they did back in those days in NBA headquarters in New York. Didn't uh, Charlie Thomas's daughter have a dream that the coin was head, so she told her dad, and that's why he called it? That's exactly right. Tracy Thomas made the call. She said dad to, to call heads. He, got, he called heads. The thing rolled like on the edge 
I can I can remember it rolling down the aisle. They flipped it, and it was like just rolling down the aisle, and people are like chasing the coin. I mean, this is like a franchise hanging in the balance and trying to determine whether that coin was heads or tails, and nobody said anything. And then all of a sudden, Charlie Thomas yelled out, it's heads. Ray Patterson was a general manager, and he's like standing over by the windowsill in this high-rise tower. And I don't know if the window was open or not, but if that thing had landed tails, you know, he might have been out down down the uh, out the window and down on the street somewhere <laughs> because <laughs> it changed the really changed uh, the fortunes in, of the franchise and so what the Rockets wound up with was the first pick and then the third pick and then Indiana losing the coin flip had the second pick and that was the difference between Ralph Sampson and Steve Stepanovich. You talk about the third pick that's another big story because Bill Fitch thought Rodney McRae was the perfect guy but of course that's one of the great what-ifs in Rockets history because everybody in Houston wanted Clyde Drexler. Do you know that if there was much of a debate among the Rockets' front office on that? No, I don't think so. You know, Clyde, uh, a lot of teams passed on Clyde. I think he was the 14th pick. It wasn't like it was right there and, and the next pick was gonna, was Drexler. You know, Clyde came out a year early, and yeah, he had great ability and great potential, and he could jump like crazy, but I think a lot of people questioned the jump shot. No, I think Bill was pretty firm on He loved the complimentary piece of Rodney McRae and putting him at the three and having uh, having Samson and McRae to build around. Those guys were pretty committed to uh, to McRae and, and uh yeah, they they like Clyde, but it you know just because he was from University of Houston or a Houston guy, I don't think they anticipated that Clyde would become the kind of pro that he was. Obviously, a surefire Hall of Famer worked out pretty good for a while. Uh, Rodney was a very solid, very good player at least for the the second year. The '86 team, you know, Samson McRae were integral figures in getting the Rockets to the NBA Finals. Another key part of the 86 Rockets was Robert Reed. And after the Samson McRae draft, Coach Fitch and GM Ray Patterson gave him a call to come back to the Rockets, which he did. Can you tell the story of Reed leaving the Rockets and then and then coming back? Because that's, that's pretty interesting. Robert was really into religion. He just left the team. I guess he thought he was going to retire. He was just very into religion at that time. And I remember he told the story one day. He had taken a construction job just to make money for what he really wanted to do was to, to be a preacher. He was working construction down in Florida. He was out of the NBA, and he he was near the airport, and he tells the story of just watching planes take off and watching them zoom across the blue sky and thinking, you know, I used to be on those planes. I used to be going to games on those planes, and how then he began to – to really miss it. He had had gotten so into religion that it, that he thought money was bad, that making money was not the right way to go, was not spiritual. I think at some point he realized that that really wasn't the case. You can make a living, you can do what you you know, where your talents lie, you can you can do that and and still be a spiritual person. So at some point he came, became open to the possibility of coming back from this sabbatical, I guess you would call it. According to Fran Blindberry, who's with NBA.com now, but was covering the team for the Chronicle at the time, there was a meeting with Fitch, Ray Patterson and Charlie Thomas during the all-star break of the Sampson and McRae's first season. They decided the team wasn't going anywhere and they wanted Elijah one in the upcoming draft. That's when 
the alleged tanking started, Robert. Was it obvious the Rockets were tanking after that? Is that the first time you heard the term tanking? You know what? I just remember at one point the record was uh, something like, not bad, 20 and 26, something like that. They realized, yeah, they weren't going anywhere, and it did become pretty obvious that something was going on. And I think at one point, Dick Mata was the coach at Dallas, and he kind of called out the Rockets for some of the lineups they were playing. Down the stretch, the last 20, 25, 30 games, they were really, really bad. It was pretty obvious that something was going on, and they kind of liked that first coin flip, and they said, hey, uh, maybe we ought to get in another coin flip here or something. There was nothing that you could really put your finger on, but, you know, it uh, it was just pretty clear that something was going on. And that's basically why we ended up with the lottery, right? I mean, the, the Rockets, uh, I think, made everybody in the league mad. Yeah, that's right. Because when you get Ralph Sampson and Rodney McCray, there's no way anybody expects you to be back in the coin flip one year later. And, of course, we know what that coin flip was, was even more intriguing because once the Rockets won the coin flip, uh, they won the coin flip with Portland. Now they've got the choice. And what a great choice. Akeem Olajuwon or Michael Jordan? <laughs> and uh, they were going to go Akeem. They wanted that Twin Towers concept. They didn't, again, as was the case with Drexler, they did, of course, nobody knew what Michael Jordan would turn into the greatest player of all time, obviously. But, uh, yeah, it could have been Samson. It could have been Samson and Jordan. I wonder how that would have, would have turned out. As it was, uh, they still got a Hall of Fame center. And so the team that's scrutinized the most from that draft is Portland, which also didn't take Jordan, took Sam Bowie to go with Drexler because they had Drexler. And then as well, we're going to get take, uh, we got Drexler, so we don't need another two guard in Jordan. And they took Sam Bowie, who obviously um, was a great player in college at Kentucky, but the injuries just wrecked his career. So you wind up with winning another coin flip with Portland. Now you got Samson, Olajuwon, and McCray to build around going forward. Let me ask you about Coach Bill Fitch because he was known as Captain Video for all the time he spent looking at video from what I understand and, and making the team look at it. And, of course, he ends up with the Rockets after beating them in the 81 finals as coach of the Celtics. What do you remember about him? What was he like? You know, from what I understand, he was pretty much a drill sergeant as, as a coach. He, he doesn't really fit in in today's NBA. You know, he felt like keeping players on edge was the way to go. He was into negative reinforcement. Don't pat him on the back too much. He loved to practice long. In fact, he got mad at me one time because Samson had an interview with Samson one time. He talked about all our long practices and we're tired. He said, I would come uh, to the effect. I would uh, hammer the nail in, but I wouldn't drill it all the way through the wood, something to that effect, to where, you know, that they were practicing too long, too hard, and it was taking their legs away. And Fitch just, he just hated, he just went, went crazy about that because that's what he loved to do was just practice, practice, practice. He felt like that was the best way to go. And he was a drill sergeant, but he was a very good coach. He was into bringing teams along slowly. He didn't want any expectations for oh, this team needs to be in the finals the second year. He felt like it's a process and let's just bring it along slowly and don't make it happen too soon. You know, he really had a, a little bit of a contentious relationship with Samson. I think he thought Samson could have been tougher at times. So then they felt like when they brought Olajuwon in, they could move Ralph to the four and it would make it easier on him physically. You know, Samson was really good his second year. Uh, he could still have his legs. John Lucas threw in the alley-oop. 
to perfection. And Akeem was a defensive force, and the offense hadn't really come along that well his first year. We look at the guards now, and everybody's trying to go small, and and, and that is kind of changing the league. But at the time, with the Rockets were doing and also you look at the Celtics team that was in the finals that year with McHale and Parrish and Bill Walton that this was changing the league because everybody started to draft centers around that time they, they, they were all the lottery picks were the big guys and uh one of the great stories Robert that I heard was from Robert Reed he says uh he says he was bringing up the ball or Dennis Johnson was bringing the ball up to half court against him the Celtics legend and Reed says he just opened up the gate to the basket, and Johnson says, Reed, what are you doing? You ain't going to play no defense? And Reed says, look down there. Do you feel lucky? <laughs> <laughs> you had Samson and Olajuwon to swat away anything that you know came into the, into the lane. Rodney McRae was a very solid defender. But, you know, the, the real crazy defensive scenario that people may have forgotten about was how well Lewis Lloyd defended Magic Johnson in the Western Conference Finals. Lewis was not a, a great defensive player. You know, Fitch would uh, work hard, Lou, work hard. He always stayed on him to try to do the best he can. But Lou was just uh, more of an offensive guy that just tried to do what he could. But defensively, he had the body to go against Magic, you know, who was so physical, so strong. You really couldn't put a small point guard on him. Obviously, you don't stop Magic Johnson, but Lewis Lloyd really got in front of him and did a good job in that series. Then you had Kareem. They had not double-teamed Kareem the whole year. They played him straight up, and he would get 35, 40 points every game. Well, when it got to the playoffs, I think Fitch was just kind of holding his cards because then they did show some creativity defensively. They had uh, double teams on Kareem, made him pass. He was a great passer, but it got the ball out of his hands. They were able to do some things defensively. So after game one, the Rockets really, really stepped it up in game two. They won a big game at the Forum. And then they came back, and I think in games three and four, Olajuwon just really stepped it up offensively. I think he had 35 and 40 in those those two games. They were able to win those games at home. But it was a great combination for that team that really stepped it up defensively. They had the shot blockers. Lou Lloyd played great against Magic. To take down that Laker team and to win the way they did in five games, that was really uh really impressive you mentioned John Lucas a little bit earlier he, he wasn't playing in the playoffs that year interesting story the Rockets draft him in 76 with the first pick but he bounces around the league for the next several years in 84 they trade for him with the Spurs and bring him back by the way they also get Sam Mitchell in that trade and that's the same Sam Mitchell who was just coaching the Timberwolves the Rockets cut Mitchell but after three years in the CBA he ends up with the Timberwolves expansion team and that's that's how his career ended up get, getting going. But back to Lucas, did, did he just land in their lap because of his personal issues? And, and, and how much did you know about his substance abuse problems at that time leading up to his suspension in 86? 84, 85, he got suspended and then he ended up coming back. That's when it first came to light about, to my knowledge, there may have been some rumors before that. Yeah, I just remember that in March of 86, just remember going to practice the next day and Lucas wasn't there. I asked somebody, uh, you know, where's Luke? It was just like everybody was just kind of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I was the only uh, media person there that day. So, you know, you got to write about it. Uh, he's not here. It's when that 
you know, news came out and obviously the, the club investigated. He was uh, forced uh, to take a drug test. It came back positive. And because of the violations the previous year, he was gone. And to watch the 86 playoffs, to watch that team that he had been on all year, and to have to watch it on TV, watch that team go to the finals, and to know that, you know, had he been there, who knows? I mean, uh, maybe the Celtics would have won anyway, but who knows? He was a pure prototype point guard. He had his issues off the field, but he could deliver passes like nobody's business. He could throw the alley-oop better than anybody. He was a great floor general. He was a great mentor for the young players. You know, he's a veteran point guard that could penetrate, get to the basket almost at will. And somehow they got to the finals without him. You, you got to ask yourself, well, what would they have done with him? I think he has said since then that it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him for his life because that was the time when he actually did hit rock bottom and, and we know what he's gone on to do and what he's done with his life with his rehabilitation ventures there in Houston and how many people he's helped. Yeah, according to Robert Reed, they, they held that team meeting that you were talking about. It was before, before that, I guess it was before that practice and and Fitch had said, we can do two things. We can keep John and make sure he stays clean and finishes finishes the season or we can let John go and let him go into the clinic to get help and that's what they decided to do and Robert Reed said you know I felt like we would help save his life and so they lose Lucas and then Alan Level is playing pretty good point guard then he breaks his wrist and Robert I don't know if you remember this story but according to Reed Bill Fitch comes to him and asks him to start at point guard. Reed says he'd get a million-dollar bonus if he had won sixth man of the year that year. And he says he asked Fitch if they could win a championship. And Fitch says yes, so they start Reed at point guard. And that turned out to be a big factor in the Lakers series also because didn't he also play Magic Johnson some of the time as well during he that did. season? He did, and they switched off. But uh, Lou Lloyd also played him, and they had two big bodies there. Reed was 6'8", Lou was 6'6", and pretty heavy, and he could sort of get in front of Magic and stop some of that relentless thrust that he had 6'9", coming to the basket at full speed that just overwhelmed some of the smaller point guards. You know, Robert, he wasn't able to do some things a normal point guard could do but he could hit the outside shot. He could distribute and get the ball, and they played in the half court. They could get the ball inside, you know, to Akeem and to Rouse. So it wasn't a long-term solution, but it fit for what they were doing that year. And once they got into a groove with it, you know, it worked out very well. You mentioned Mitchell Wiggins earlier. Everybody knows him now as Andrew's dad, Andrew Wiggins. Is, mm-hmm. there, is there any part of his game that, that you see when you watch Andrew that reminds you of Mitchell, or were they at all similar besides being kind of long and lanky? guys just the athleticism i think mitchell was a very athletic player he didn't have the hops that andrew has what i remember most about mitchell wiggins he was a great great offensive rebounder for a two guard he could get inside he was a slithery kind of player pretty good jump shooter but he could get inside get offensive rebounds like nobody's business well you talked a little bit about the lakers series earlier and uh the big thing i guess that everybody remembers from that final game is First of all, of course, the Samson shot, but also Mitch Kupchak goading Dream into that fight, yep. and he got kicked out of the game, and Dream was worried as hell, according to what he said. that He said, I was worried that Bill Fitch was going to kill me, so I was praying we were going to win the game, not just to win the game. I didn't want Fitch to kill me, so I was back in the locker room just hoping we could pull it out. That's absolutely correct. In those early years, he had a real short fuse. The temper would get him in trouble. Previous year, 
84-85, they lost a tough opening round series. It went the distance, and they had the the last game, game five, at home against Utah. And there was a wily veteran named Billy Paltz who had been with the Rockets in 81, actually, when they went to the finals. And Paltz in that game five goaded Olajuwon, you know, just slapping him around and really, really got under his skin. Hakeem wound up taking a punch and, and it turned the game around. They hit Paltz and, and the Jazz got all fired up and came back and won that game, won the series. Yeah, the next year it was cup check. So Hakeem, Hakeem gets kicked out of game five. It comes down to... uh <laughs> a crazy shot. I don't even know if you'd call it a throw or a shot or what it was. It was just get it into Samson, turn and get it up to the basket. And it was like the fates were red and gold with rocket colors. The ball bounces around, falls through the net. And I just remember great pictures of Michael Cooper just laying there stunned and Riley walking off the court in a state of shock. Just a great moment. It was so late to so that game. It started really late on the West Coast. We didn't know if we could get anything in the paper. It was so late, but I think they held it, and we did get something in. You know, the other thing I remember after that game was a rocket stayed at the L.A. airport Marriott and had like a reception down there, and by the time that was open, uh, over, it was actually time to go to the, to the airport and go home. Well, in those days, 86, you know, everybody was still flying commercial, so you're on a commercial flight. Everybody kind of settled down, I think, and, you know, there's normal passengers on the plane and the pilot comes on as they were starting to go down toward intercontinental airport and says hey uh there's some uh, people down at the airport that uh, kind of want to see the team when they get off and everybody's thinking oh you know a few people i guess there's some people out there and then he comes about 10 seconds later and he goes i'm told there is actually no room to walk anywhere on any concourse in the airport <laughs> and everybody was just kind of oh my god when they got off the plane and walked out, Kathy Whitmer, I believe, was the mayor, and she was holding up a sign. There was a slogan back then, Houston Proud. It was just red and gold all the way down the concourse. As far as I could see, it was really an amazing sight with people with banners that had just descended on the airport to, to greet the team when they came back. And just a really exciting time. You know, it was something that I think if you were there, you'll never forget. It's just that sea of people and how captivated everyone in the city was that this team had taken down the Great Lakers. Yeah, and Elijah Wan coming off the five slam pajama. So the, the, the love for him in Houston, I know, was a big deal back then. And I remember it well. I wanted to ask you about the Celtics series because James Worthy says it's almost like Houston's goal was to beat the Lakers when they got into the series against Boston. They just seemed to lose their composure a little bit. It's just like in 84, Boston kind of took us off our tracks with their physical play. I don't think they were ready for that. They didn't have anybody on that team that really had the experience other than the coach himself. Samson was just totally distracted. They could just never find their game. What are your thoughts when you think back on the series, Robert? Is, is he right? Did they Had they lost their composure a little bit? The thing I remember most about it was the struggles of Lewis Lloyd, who was a great offensive two-guard. He just never got it going against Dennis Johnson in that series. The more people talked about it and the more it was discussed, it seemed like Lou got tighter and tighter. And he just never, never got it going in that series. He, they lost a, a big offensive weapon. I think mentally Lou just kind of got taken out of that series. The team, they had their moments in that series. They were competitive. The Celtics were just too good. They were just too good. It was what it was. I mean, you could say the Rockets didn't 
maybe bring their A-plus game, but I think it was more a case of the Celtics just being one of the great teams of all time, and, and they were just destined to win the, the championship in 86. And that was when Larry Bird was really at the top of his game, right? That game six, yeah. from what uh, I remember, that was one of the best games that he ever played. Yeah, that was the prime of Larry Bird. The prime of the Celtics, really. You know, they got back to the finals again the next year, but it was a struggle. I think McHale got hurt. That was when McHale started having those foot issues. So the the Lakers won in in 87 again. But 86 was, I think, if you rank the top, oh gosh, five teams of all time, you got to put the 85 Lakers in the 86 Celtics right there. It was just a time when the NBA was in a golden age for Houston to beat the Lakers, a great team, and then get to the finals and be competitive against a great all-time team in the Celtics, I think speaks very, very well for that 86 team, which I think I've always often debated whether the 86 Rockets or the 94 Rockets were the better team. I would have to give it to the 94 team only because Olajuwon at that time was just so good, just out of this world good. Let me ask you about Ralph Sampson because it seemed like that was really his last hurrah was that, that season that he starts to get injured and, and he's never the same player. Am, am I remembering this wrong? Did he get injured at the Boston Garden? There was a back injury and then that sort of led to his some of his knee issues? Yeah, he went up. I think he did have uh, have something there. And then 86-87, when the expectations were so high, that team got blown apart uh, the next year. That was the age of the cocaine epidemic, and they had suspensions that year. Lou Lloyd got kicked out of the league, and Lloyd and Wiggins, and Samson got hurt. And so it was just a terrible, terrible year coming off of 85-86. You know, Ralph started to have the injuries, and uh, I think the next year was when they made the trade with Golden State, and he left the team. But uh, for that 86 season, yeah, he was a high flyer. He was still going strong. And then he had Elijah Wan, sort of took over offensively. Uh, he was becoming so good and so refined as Ralph got hurt. Akeem became more and more the offensive focal point, and it became a situation where they felt like, well, we can – Maybe move Ralph and get better complementary pieces and just build around, make Olajuwon our true focal point and go go in that direction. Yeah, it's crazy symmetry that he gets then traded for Joe Barry Carroll, which was the guy that was drafted, and instead of him, if he would have come come out in 1980. You mentioned the Lloyd and Wiggins suspensions for, for drugs. Lou Lloyd says they were set up. He thought they were set up with the whole drug situation. Did, did you buy into that? Have you heard him talk about that at all you know there was a conference call with the league i remember just a shock i mean when you think about two key guys being just taken off of off of your roster you know how do you replace that i mean you know there's no draft picks coming back to you there's no trade pieces coming back to you just roster holes blown wide open that you got to try to deal with so i don't know how it went down or what what evidence there was or how, how, how it all happened. I just know that it was just a shock. And the team that year, you know, obviously is just never recovered from, from that kind of a blow. It's just uh, something that the, they took them years to come back from. Is there any comparison that you can make of any team in NBA history that, you know, you lose three of your, your three best guards basically because of drug suspensions over a year's time? That's a crazy thing to have to deal with. I, you can't even imagine that now. Absolutely is. I mean, three top guards, you say Lucas, Wiggins, and Lloyd, who were your guys 
you know, while you're building that 86 team and going to the uh, NBA Finals, even though Lucas didn't get all the way to the finish line. Yeah, to take those three guys off your roster, as I said, no compensation. It was just a blow that took them years to recover from. And basically, they had to go back and start over. Almost like your backcourt was a, in an expansion phase at that point. They were fortunate that Olajuwon was so young at that time. It was still his prime by the time they got back to 94. This is, what, six, six years later, six, seven years later, that he was at his all-time best. By then, you know, they had surrounded the team, again, with good talent. Ralph Sampson, let me ask you one more question about him because it seemed like for a time there, people looked at him as a, as a big bust, but it was really the injuries I felt that took him down because when he was in his prime, he was a 2010 guy. He was a yep. NBA All-Star MVP. He was a regular All-Star. This was a great player, and a lot of people said, oh, those guys – didn't really work all that well together, but you you can't explain what they did to a team's to another team's offense and how they destroyed that team on the defensive end. And Ralph had the ability to be a perimeter player at times, and so they did really work together, didn't they? Yeah, they really, especially in eighty in eighty six, the way that all came together. I know the moniker Twin Towers goes back, and I think a. It really goes all the way back to Kentucky with Bowie and Mel Turpin. Yeah, they were a formidable duo for sure. And again, it was the injuries to Ralph. He didn't have the body frame to which he had to be athletic. He had to have his legs. He had to be able to jump higher than, you know, anybody else. And and he could do that for a while. But then when the injuries came and his, his movement was taken away somewhat, he couldn't quite get up the way he did before. As you mentioned, he did go way above the basket and land on his back. A lot of people thought, well, maybe there were some, that put some thoughts into his mind or maybe mentally he never really recovered from that frightening fall when he used to just go so far above the basket and then got flipped and landed on his back, whether mentally uh, he ever recovered from that. But whatever it was, he was a shooting star. He was the golden boy. He was the face of cable television in its infancy. He was the first guy that really became a larger-than-life figure, and so maybe we all expected too much when he came in the NBA. But he was an all-star. I believe he was the MVP of an all-star game. When the injuries came, it really diminished what he could do. But uh, there was a time when he was certainly great, and the, you know, the Elijah Juan Sampson combo was really a formidable force. That was one of my favorite guys in the business, Robert Falkoff, who's also written books on the 94 championship and Rudy T. And speaking of the newly named Hall of Famer Rudy T, you're about to hear from longtime Rocket Robert Reed about playing with Rudy and also some stories on his teammates, Moses Malone and, of course, Ralph Sampson. He explains what could have been with the Twin Towers. Let's hear from the man who was often referred to as Bobby Joe Reed. Pleasure to have you with us, and I want to take you back a ways, Robert. You were drafted in the second round and eventually surprised everybody by taking Rudy T's starting spot. Most of us remember Rudy T, the coach. Tell us what Rudy, the player and person, was like in those days. I really didn't take Rudy's spot. Let me tell you what happened. I was number 19 on the team. There was 19 teams in the NBA at the time and 11 on the team. And what ended up happening was, after we had gone through a five, six-game losing streak, coming back from Cleveland, Tom Nassau told me the airport, he said, hey, get ready, you're going to start tonight. 
and that was against New York, New York Knicks. And so the starting lineup was John Lucas, Calvin Murphy, Rudy T, Robert Reed, and Moses Malone. You never forget your first game you started. I had like 24 points, three steals, seven rebounds, thing like five, six assists. And here's the thing. I didn't shoot no jumpers during that time. <laughs> if I even looked like I was going to be in to shoot a jumper, I knew I was coming out. When you got Lucas, Moses, Rudy, and Calvin, so most of my points came from just running the floor getting layups. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what, what was Rudy like then? What was he like as a as a guy? Between those guys I just mentioned, one other guy that I really got to call out would be, if you remember, Mike Newland. Yeah. Mike Newland and Rudy Key, being a small forward, they really took me underneath their wings. Rudy was one, he would not let me take that time off. He said, hey, even Mike Newland during practices and all, he said, hey, what are you doing? You're not bringing it. You're not bringing it. And and so Rudy, you could see that coaching style that he was going to have in him. And the unfortunate part is we won four, I'd say five games in a row until the unfortunate incident that happened in L.A. That incident happened with Rudy subbing for me. He subbed for me, and 30 seconds later, you know, it happened. Yeah, you're talking about the Kermit Washington injury where he was punched, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, and it was like I said, he just, the buzzer rang, and they looked at me through Bobby, I got you. I said, okay, you got Jamal Wilson. As I was walking to the bench, the action was going away from us, and I saw the whole thing happen. So we had something getting ready to happen. You could sense it. And so that unfortunate incident. Yeah, he made an incredible comeback, of course, from that. And I want to take you to that finals run in 1980. You faced... Magic in the first round, and you faced Larry Bird in the finals. Not sure if you guarded Magic, but I believe you guarded Larry in the finals. What do you remember about facing those two guys? Well, I had Magic in 81 a little bit, along with Tom Henderson, who was our guard from the Washington Bullets. Moses literally put the one and twos on, on his shoulders, all right? One and two on the right, three and four on the left. And he took us, and, you know, we had Dunleavy, Murphy, Allen level, you know, we all came together and the whopper had the whopper. So we won that. The best series was when we had to go seven games against the Spurs. Then came Boston. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. That first game, I got dressed, had my uh, toast with some honey and hot tea. And before I walked on the door, out the door of the hotel, I got on my hands and knees, and I said, Lord, now you brought us a mighty long way, and we want to thank you. I want to thank you. Now, Lord, you know I've never prayed for victory. I'm not now, but just do this. <laughs> Give me the strength so this white boy Larry Bird does not get MVP because I've got <laughs> to go back home to San Antonio. Cedric <laughs> 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 Maxwell got it. <laughs> So, but no, Bird, Larry Bird, I'll be honest, you could put the, the years from when he first came in till I retired first, you could put our whole sentences, what we talked about, probably on four sheets of paper. And it was a good game. We always pointed each other. We never really shook hands until after the series was over with. But 
he was the type of guy, a player, that if you didn't bring it that night, he'd tell you, just why don't you just go home? Just go on back. Because <laughs> he wanted the competition every night, and you have to respect that. I wanted to ask about Moses Malone, one of the greatest centers of all time, and helped uh, get to the finals, obviously, that year. What did you think of his comments and when they came out that he could take any four other players and beat the Celtics? Did that just rile up the Celtics even more? What was well, your response to that during the, the finals? Well, 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 when Moses said that, you, I knew straight up that was going to be bulletin board material. And I, I vividly remember when reporters came to me and they asked me about that. I said, well, i tell you what. You know, you remember now, we didn't have no cell phones back there. I said, tell you what, when I go home, I'm going to call my mom and see if I'm not from Petersburg. <laughs> you had to back the big fella up. Because that's what he believed in. That's what he believed in. And that's why he got us there in 81. Because Moses just got tired of losing. And, and the one thing that got us there, and he said it in his book, is Coach Pat Wiley, is that when he only played Moses four minutes in that All-Star game that year, he said if I had given him probably six to eight minutes, he probably wouldn't have gone crazy like he did. But that, that was the pride, that was the character that Moses Malone had and the love he had for the game. Well, Moses retires, and then you decide you're going to retire I guess I was about 11 years old at the time. You were in the prime of your career. Uh, you said it was because of uh, religious reasons. You missed the 82 and 80, 83 season or the 82, 83 season and, and hadn't really planned to come back. You were working at a cement plant and you were studying to become a fireman, right? How, how serious was all that for you? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Now that everything is over with, I can be honest with you and tell you this. Part of it was talking to Moses and when the Rockets didn't want to match that $20,000 offer extra of Philly, and I kind of, he knew, and I knew what was up, that the Rockets were going to try to go for Ralph Sampson, right? Yeah. Gina comes in last. I'm sorry. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. So, you know, now it's all over with. I had a great career. And, yes, I went to Miami, my wife, my kids. Became a deacon in the church, worked in like an eagle store that was equivalent like a Walgreens, but without the pharmaceutical and so closed. Then a cement uh, factory. So that's what I kind of did. And I didn't even really think about it until Bill Fitch and Ray Patterson called me. And Fitch said, see, his words were, hey, I remember how you played against me in 81. I like you come back and do that for me now that I'm a coach here at the Rockets. Me and the wife, we talked about it. My first wife and uh, I went back and we kind of picked it up. And you got to you got to realize too, we were three years ahead of schedule of what the organization Charlie Thomas, Kitsy, Bill, and, and uh, Ray Patterson was ahead. You know, it was supposed to be four years that we were going to start being his team. We did it in three. When you came back, you joined Ralph, and then Akeem came the next season. What was it like playing with the young Elijah on? And give us your, your best dream story, if you would. Not only that, but you got to remember, a lot of people thought the Rockets were wrong and, and taking 
Rodney McCray instead of Clyde Drexler. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you got to realize this is what they were looking at. Okay. If we get Clyde with his athletic ability and the player that he was, now you got a little conflict with Ralph, and then we got a king. But look what we did. We were able to, to get Rodney and myself, and me and Rodney used to say, do you realize we're the best small forward in the league if you add up our points and rebounds together? <laughs> so we were able to mesh as a team. Now, my best goal of our dream, I'm coming down the floor and when I was playing the point, and I hear this voice say, Bobby, give me the bomb on. And I look and I see three guys on him. I said, Dream, you got three guys waiting for you. That's okay. I took on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I just gave him the ball and he dunked on him. <laughs> and the fun part about Dream's game is when he started getting that, getting in that groove, he'd get the biggest smile and laugh on him. And he said, bring it, mom, bring it, mom. And, and you, you had to enjoy it. You had to love his enthusiasm and his love for the game. Unbeatable, that Akeem. A, a year ago, unbeatable. Yeah, a year ago, Grantland wrote a story about the '86 team called "The Next Greatest Team That Never Was." Everybody talks about those drug suspensions with Mitchell Wiggins and Lewis Lloyd, but I know just as frustrating has to be Ralph's injuries. He was never really the same after the finals against the Celtics at the Garden. Do you feel like yeah. just having Ralph not get hurt would have kept the Rockets in contention for subsequent years, yeah. or were there greater forces at work? I'm glad you asked that because of this. If we would have had the sports medicine that these young men players have today, Ralph would have been a, a factor, a tremendous career, and definitely, he, you know, he got into the uh, – uh, uh, collegiate Hall of Fame, but you remember that uh, horrible fall he had at the Garden, and came to find out that part of his hip, just that left side or the right, was an inch off. Then the next year, his knees gave off because of that hip. So now he's got the inch off the hip, his left knee is halfway gone, then the third year comes the right leg. So, so no, Ralph was never fully healed to be the player that as rookie of the year that he was his first year. That was the Ralph Stanton everybody knew was supposed to be there 12, 15, maybe 17 years in the NBA and be one of the top leading scorers. So, no, we missed that. With Lewis Lord and Mitchell Wiggins, Lord have mercy. How can, how, how, how can you put it? A lot of players had one, two, three, four times that they were, you know, suspended. Now, these two guys, one time, are suspended for life? One time. So it makes you wonder what's going on. One time only, and now they're suspended for life, and that shakes up our whole team. Yeah, because the Rockets with the Twin Towers there were poised to to make a run towards finals, especially after getting by the Showtime Lakers in that memorable series with Ralph's last-second shot. Yeah, but check this out. Who was the one to hit the shot to tie the game up? Hello, Bajo. <laughs> 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 but, you know, 
I can tell you one thing about the Twin Towers. One game we played the Celtics, I got the great Dennis Johnson. You know, he passed, he passed away as one of the coaches with the um, MEDL League, the Austin uh, Toro. I let him go by me a couple of drills. He stopped. He said, Ray, what are you doing? And I pulled it around for the team. I said, do you feel lucky? Because once you go by there, I got me two points. <laughs> <laughs> Love that conversation with Robert Reed a few years ago. So much fun to reminisce about the Rockets in the 80s and especially that 86 season as we celebrate the anniversary of the Samson buzzer beater. Make sure to check our archives for more of the Throwback Thursdays. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.